0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, we do encourage you that with any questions you may have, uh, comments, concerns, uh, really anything about the church, the gospel, Jesus, why we do what we do here, please uh, do not hesitate to speak with me or with any one of the other elders after service is over. Uh, we are here for you. And, and we say that as much as we can because we really do think that talking things out is much better than holding things in. And that a clarity of understanding can be achieved with more dialogue. And so please feel free to speak to us uh, about anything. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 15 and verse 25 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 875. If you are using a church Bible, page 875. Luke chapter 15 and verse 25. And before we look at our text together, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship and and now as we come before your word. uh, By the Holy Spirit, God, uh, by your grace, would you help us to see ourselves clearly and accurately and help us to see yourself clearly and accurately that we might know our hearts And more than that, that we might know your heart. Uh, Please captivate us with the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. The famous parable of the prodigal son, which we began to look at last Sunday, uh, begins really with the statement in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. There's two of them. But it is that usually the older brother is forgotten when he is actually the one who serves as the main point of the parable. But he is often forgotten, I think, for, for many of us, uh, relate to the prodigal within its narrative more than we do anyone else. We relate to this younger son as if his story were our own story, as, as being wandering and lost and desperately needing to return to the Father. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone turning to his or her own way, following our own hearts, wanting a life of independence from God who really provides everything for us. But no restraints, no suffocating authority, only the freedom to do what I want to do and when I want to do it and, and to be whoever it is that I want to be, uh, only to find that that said freedom brings us into a kind of slavery and that this God-free life is not what it is cracked up to be. And, and Jesus paints this with the most graphic of images as this rock bottom of someone who envies pigs. But it is at that bottom where we do often come to repentance. Repentance. And when we come back to the Father, we find that he is not only willing to receive us, but we find that he has been looking for us. And he runs to us and embraces us. He falls on our neck. He kisses us over and over. And he celebrates our return as a resurrection of sorts from death to life. For we realize as believers that sonship with him is true freedom to experience his love and there have a deep and genuine joy. So many of the testimonies within our congregation find this natural parallel to this younger uh, prodigal son. And while this account of the wandering son is full of truth and visualizes so many aspects of the gospel, he is actually not the main point, nor is his reunion with the father how the parable even ends. Remember that this series of three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, is given by Jesus in response to the criticism that he's receiving from the most religious people of the day because he's spending time with people that we would never spend time with. Jesus is among the tax collectors and notorious sinners who have really drawn near to him because they wanna hear the words that are coming out of his mouth. They're not trying to cling to their sins, they're coming to the one who tells them to leave them. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they hate the company that Jesus is keeping. And so Jesus gives to them, he gives to his critics, the ones who would never spend time with these guys. Jesus is actually giving to them this set of three parables as a defense of his own actions, and also, as we will see this morning, as a gracious appeal to them for their own repentance. For it is that that often it's the most religious ones who are in need of a savior just as much, if not more, than those prodigals who make no mistake about their own wandering. And so this morning, we look at this less famous son, and in verse 25, we read this. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. We see here first the the distance between the older son and his father, even when he never did actually physically wander away from home, like his brother did. There's still this disconnect with what makes his father's heart to beat and what gives the father joy and the son. And and it's not just a disconnect, but the older brother is actually furious at what makes the father happy, even though he's been within arm's reach all these years. And this is a, a painful picture. This is a tragic portrait You know, this parable uh, really does have so many facets to it, and none of the details are unintentional, uh, nor are they wasted. I think reading this as a new believer 25 or so years ago as a young man who wanted to experience the world and and found it to be lacking, uh, certain things are obviously going to pop. Reading this as a middle-aged father, other things uh, do pop. To have a, a wayward father, a wayward child, spit in your face, so to speak, uh, squander your hard-earned estate, and storm off in an era without internet, cell phones, FaceTime, Zoom, yada, yada, full-funded debauchery in a faraway land. I mean, a parent can only think of the very worst things that could happen, spend hours in wonder, and, and not have any kind of restful night. But a parent's love for the child, it doesn't lessen because that's happening, And that concern, it doesn't shrink over time. I'm sure if you ask any loving father or mother whose child has run off into the deep end, I'm sure if you ask them what their greatest hope in this life would be, it would be to have my son, to have my daughter back and back on the path that leads to life, not on one in the faraway land, which is is why there is such a grand celebration when that child returns. The father said as much in verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is the father's heart, but this is not the brother's heart. Now, I have three uh, younger sons growing up together, and and at the mere prospect of the two older ones going away to camp for five days, I mean, just at the prospect of that, Trent, my third son, he starts crying, even bawling, because he doesn't want to be away from his brothers for that long. And, And I know that he's eight, and people do grow up, but... But there is an appropriate uh, brotherly affection and concern as well. Here we have it. This older son is working in the field, and, and how appropriate is that little detail and understanding how this parable is unfolding? This son had never been away to the far country. He was the good Jewish boy who carried on the family business in faithful duty, capital D duty. This is the responsible son, the son who brings his father honor, and any outsider and any neighbor, they'd look at this family and they think, well, one son brought the father great shame and broke his heart, but at least he has the other son who never left, the other son who is very close to his heart. But it is that outside appearances can be utterly deceiving. And there's something about faithful work and diligent duty that can awaken within us the most forceful of self-righteous attitudes that can so easily fuel a genuine hatred for others and a disconnect from the Father because there's something about putting forth effort and work and blood, sweat, and tears that makes us look down with disdain upon those who do not. And it is at this very moment where this older son does stink from a hard day outside and with the celebration already in full swing that that celebration of his younger brother who he hasn't seen for years, there, there's something about that celebration which this older brother doesn't think should be celebrated that repulses him and triggers him and sets him off and reveals what is truly within his heart. And, and, and this is said in contrast to the relational language that the servant is using here, which is key. The servant says, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him safe and sound. This language is reminding this older brother of his place as a brother and as a son to his father and of the fact that this one who's been keeping us up late at night Thinking of the worst of outcomes, this one is actually safe and sound. But in this moment, neither of those relationships seem to matter to him at all. His younger brother, nothing. Being safe and sound, nothing. His father's joy, nada. That instead of a celebratory heart of love that I haven't seen my brother, I've been so worried, I've been so worried about dad and how he's staring into that horizon, longing for his return, instead of any kind of heart that would prove that he is within the same family. This older son is disgusted by it all. And to the servant, I mean, poor guy. He's just delivering good news. I'm sure his face is all lit up. He's expecting his older brother to leap for joy or have some kind of emotional experience that is not the one that he's witnessing in this moment. But the common expectation would be that this older son would run in to join into the celebration. I mean, one lost sheep, celebration. One lost coin, celebration. One lost son, celebration. This trio of parables has set the listener up for a pattern, and the pattern here is now broken. There's no celebration from the son, which is the main thesis of this parable. Why? Oh, why is he not celebrating? what everyone else is celebrating. It's because his heart is far from his father's heart and his heart is far from his brother. And even though he didn't wander off in proximity and in wastefulness, there is this severe disconnect and not just a disconnect, but a wrathful fury and disgust that feels so justified. I mean, he's not ashamed of his disgust being communicated to his father and to the rest of the guests. Everybody knows there's something wrong One commentator likens what the older brother is doing here to getting into a shouting match at somebody's wedding. It's shameful. The older brother is shaming his father and his brother and the rest of the community. But why? Why is it? Why is this distance from the father's heart? Uh, We begin to see why and what it is that fuels this kind of mentality in the next set of verses. Look with me at the second half of verse 28 as we continue. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Self-righteousness is why his heart is so far from the fathers. Self-righteousness and pride, religious pride especially, is a distancing sin, us from God and us from one another. And here we see the profound and blinding power of self-righteousness and pride, which prevents us from experiencing the joy of God and the salvation of those who are lost. It's powerful and it blinds us. It's powerful first. And make no mistake about it here, you can't have this kind of rage unless something is powerful behind it. You can't shame your father in front of the whole entire community and stop a full-blown celebration in his tracks unless something powerful is behind it. And as this father comes out to meet this older brother, as the celebration is about a death-to-life reunion, all this older son can see is his own righteousness. I mean, he can't in this moment see anything else. That's how powerful it can be. It is all-encompassing. And here we find this young man confessing his righteousness. These many years I have served you. That's tenure. I never disobeyed your command. That's a spotless record. He is making his case. But self-righteousness doesn't let the case end there because it must comparatively shine. And so he begins to attack his brother and confess his brother's sin. This son of yours, not my brother, your son who devoured your property, with prostitutes. I mean, the self-righteous, they are experts of, and they love to confess the sins of other people. But here's the thing, though. How does he even know that his younger brother spent the money on prostitutes? There's no Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, to deliver live updates. He doesn't really have any idea on how this money has been wasted at all. He can only guess. But this is the assumption of the proud and self-righteous, that that guy's sin is really that bad, especially next to my spotless record. And if I were to go rogue, prostitutes are the very first thing that come to my mind on how that money would be spent. And here we find this weird twist, that as he attacks his brother's hypothetical wickedness, his own begins to come to light. And the religiously self-righteous without any spiritual life and vitality, it is often exactly that. They are whitewashed dooms. We saw this in Luke 11:37 37 and onward, that they clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside is full of greed and wickedness. Clean exteriors can really harbor some disgusting insides, but rather than deal with those insides, the spiritually proud is an expert of other people's sins where we can dissect and exegete and lawyer up every which way this person over here is so horrible and not see any of it in ourselves. This is how powerful self-righteousness can be. And more and more as this narrative is unfolding, we begin to understand how lost he is. Now, this parable is ultimately not about a father and brother and familial relationships. It is ultimately about how we relate to God and how we relate to our neighbor, The two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor even as you love yourself. And where do we find this older son? He can't even call his father father or dad. Instead, he says, look, these many years I have served you. Doesn't call his brother brother, but instead says this son of yours. And isn't that exactly what is happening, that God is not really the Pharisee's father at all? And that other sinful people coming to Jesus, they're not really the Pharisees, brothers, and sisters. Their self-righteousness is very, very powerful. It's separating, and it's potent, but it's also blinding. And here I think it may be helpful to understand self-righteousness by trying to think self-righteously. You know, this older brother, he's been working the family estate. He never took off. He never wandered. He never did anything outwardly wrong. I mean, this is the model Jewish son of this era. And then this younger son squanders our hard-earned money, irresponsibly, carefree, and runs away to a faraway land. I mean, he brings disgrace on the family. Wouldn't the world be a better place if there were more people like me and less people like them? I mean, we don't want to enable people like them, do we? We don't want to reward bad behavior. I mean, what kind of precedent is being set here? And we also don't want to rip off uh, good behavior, right? I mean, people like me, working hard, spotless. Why don't I even get a goat to celebrate with my friends? I'm not even asking for a fattened calf. Just a little old goat. And and on the surface, it may seem like this brother has a point, which is often why self-righteousness and pride is a much more deadly set of sins than wandering off and squandering living. If the younger son had been far off from the father, at least everybody knew it. This older model son, his heart is not with a father, and no one knows it, not even himself. This younger son becomes enslaved to a pig farmer. This older son views himself as enslaved to a father that he can't even call father, for his relationship to him has not been one of joy, but only pure performance. Again, look, these many years I have served you, it doesn't sound like a joyous family relationship. It doesn't sound like what Jesus describes in John four thirty four that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And this, at this point, is where the alarm bells need to go off. For it is very possible to stay within the church walls and come every Sunday and serve in whatever way that we can. Give our offerings and check, check, and chickety check mark the box. And not even be in a joyous relationship with the Father at all. Serving not in love, but only obligation. Not in delight, but only and merely duty. I guess I have to do what every good Christian does. I have to do it. And then be utterly disgruntled when we're not being recognized for it. As if all of our efforts have been wasted and invaded. I mean, why did I do all this again? I didn't even get my goat. And the thing that will ignite the most rage within us is when other people, who seem to be below us, they're getting celebrated when they haven't earned a thing. They're getting fat and cast. And and this is where we see the key sin of self-righteousness and the horrendous evil of it. That somehow it is that we can begin to genuinely think that all these years I have served God and I have never disobeyed a commandment. We demand blessings as if we are owed them. I've earned this from God. Me, 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 me. I mean, are you serious? Have we become that blind to the iniquity that still resides within our hearts? The, the blinding power of self-righteousness is that we somehow think we are much easier to save and our sins are much easier to forgive and we are much easier to love than those other people who don't deserve it as much as we do. The sin of self righteousness and pride is is that it actually resents grace because it doesn't think that it ultimately needs it, or at least it doesn't need it as much as others. And it can be as subtle as, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a nice guy. I do the right thing, above average athleticism, looks. I mean, of course, if Jesus were to die for anyone, I mean, why not me? It can be as subtle as, Lord, I read my Bible every day, I don't get drunk on the weekends. Why aren't you giving to me what I want? A spouse, a child, more cash, better friends, the job, a a healthy, non-injured body. I mean, what else do I have to do for you to give me what I so desire? Not you. I don't necessarily want more of you because you're not as good as these things I want down here, but I feel like I'm being wronged. It can be as subtle as I only want these kinds of people to come to my church and not those kinds And therefore, I'm only gonna reach out to these and not those, and only these and not those will ever be the objects of my affections. It can be as subtle as looking out into the world, shaking our heads profusely, because there's a vast difference between self-righteous indignation and righteous indignation. Overly inflated view of self, extra negative view and contempt for others, distance from the Father, and distance from anyone else who is not like us never sensing our own need and therefore never valuing the beauty of grace which we all need and not some more than others. But at the ground, at the foot of the cross, we find that it's actually quite level. The parable begins, there was a man who had two sons. Both are lost. Both are far from the father but only the younger son realizes it and wants to come back to him. The older son doesn't think he has lost at all and he can't even look his dad in the eyes. And you know, for those of you who are new here, uh, maybe new to coming to church or, or, or any church, grace is, is undeserved favor. And so it is by definition that you can't work for it. It's undeserved. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. It's only available to those who think they need it. Del Ralph Davis, in his commentary on Luke, he writes this, It's difficult for an older brother type to see that. Though he may prefer more classy sins, he is nevertheless in the same category as the whore hugger. And until he begins to be in need, there is not much hope for him. And and friends, until you begin to see yourself in much need, There's not much hope for you or for any of us either. Charles Spurgeon writes this about the gospel when you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy, you have hit the truth. And we see this in this parable. I mean, compare the differences in these two sons' confessions. Look at verse 16. The prodigal, this is his confession. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He gets it. Look at the older brother, verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I mean, who is the more lost one? And so here we see the profound and, and blinding power of self-righteousness and pride, which can prevent us from experiencing God and experiencing his joy in the salvation of those who are lost. But look at the father with his older son. Look with me in verse 31. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. When we look at the father in the parable, not just the second half, but the first half as well, uh, we begin to understand the heart of God for the lost, both for the one who wanders far from him And also for the one who doesn't wander, but is still far from him. When the prodigal makes a turn to come home, it's the father who runs to him. When the self-righteous refuses to come into the celebration, it's the father who leaves that celebration to appeal to him. When we would not come to him, the father comes out to us. And in both cases, it is the father seeking the lost. But listen to his words here, son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. What the religiously far have to realize is that our God is not a slave driver, nor is he the stern and cold dad or a hard master. And if we want to relate to God in those ways, we are never going to actually know him. What this son needs to realize, is that while you prefer your own goat and to be with your own friends, and while both sons, therefore, wanted a life without the father... What he needs to realize is true life is with the Father. And this is a Father who wants to give to you everything that is his, everything. And Christianity is not about do's and don'ts primarily. That's not what eternal life is about. Jesus, when he's praying to the Father before he goes to the cross, he says this in John 17, 3 is... To finding eternal life. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Christianity is not, I will obey this much, now can you give me a goat to celebrate with my friends? Christianity is, I get you, God, and I get Jesus Christ, whom you have sent to save me because I needed to be saved. And I'm incapable of doing anything about it. Christianity is about having the Father, having the Son, having the Spirit, three in one. And what is Jesus doing at the close of this parable? He's actually giving an appeal to these Pharisees and these scribes. I mean, the privileges they have of knowing the Word of God and living religiously. Jesus is pleading with them not to spurn that privilege. And this is where we get to see this grace all the more. This is the Son of God actually pleading with his murderers. These are the people that are gonna manipulate the situation to get Jesus crucified. And Jesus here knows that. And he's still appealing to them out of kindness and not from threats here. He's pleading with the ones who hate him most. He's saying, isn't it fitting? That I spend time with tax collectors and sinners that they might come to know the Father. Isn't it fitting that the ones closest to God would celebrate this and not condemn this? And if you can't celebrate this, then something must be wrong. And what does Jesus want their response to be? He wants them to repent as well. He's not pointing out their sin for condemnation's sake here, but so that they might see their wicked ways and turn from them and live to come back home to celebrate new life with the Father, that what has been dead can now be alive. And it may be for many of us church people who distance themselves from prodigals that we need to repent as well, not of whore-hugging, but of self-righteousness and pride that perhaps a switch needs to flip from performance-based slavery to childlike relationship. I mean, the self-righteous, we, they have their whole relationship to God built upon the wrong footing. We need more so to understand what it means to be with him and to enjoy him more than we do anything else. You know, we, we often think of the gospel that you have to believe these statements— four laws, or five this, or blah, blah, blah. We we often think of the gospel that you need to believe these statements and recite them verbatim. When it's actually that you need to trust this person, and you have to know this person, that if we understand the magnitude of sonship, that all that is his is ours, we might understand the depth of relationship that is being offered to us in Jesus Christ. You know, friends, it doesn't matter if you're a reckless wanderer or a religiously self-righteous person. Either way, you're lost, and you're needing to be found. Either way, you're only worthy of God's condemnation and judgment and not his love, and yet it is that the Son of God who gives us this parable, he's walking to that cross because he's willing to die in the sinner's place. He's willing to die as sin itself, to hang there and absorb the wrath of God, to shield us from that which is due to us. This is how Jesus chooses to die. And on the third day, he rises, proof positive that that shield, that offering on our behalf has been accepted. God's wrath against sin satisfied. Our debt has been paid in full. And this love of Jesus is much more than the love that this father has in this parable for his two sons. That love is just a mere pointer to this greater love, but we will only come to know him and this love if we understand we are unworthy of it. And we must repent and admit our guilt and turn from it and receive from him the gift of eternal life. Uh, The parable ends abruptly. We don't know what happens after the father's appeal, and I think that's by design. Jesus ends this parable to put us, the listener, in a place of decision, and the Pharisees and the scribes as well, to ask ourselves, am I rejoicing in the salvation of the lost or not? Perhaps it is that I've never viewed myself as all that lost at all, and therefore I have no compassion or comprehension of any kind of grace upon the lost out there. And for us within the church, perhaps a bulletproof way of evaluating if we are close to the Father or not, is if we have the same heart for the lost, and if we would run with all our might to meet wandering sinners wherever they may be. If we have that, we're close to the Father. If we've lost that, maybe we've been blinded by a little self-righteousness. Maybe we've been blinded by a little bit of our pride. And as we come to Lord's table, how often it is that we can go through the motions of it in ways we ought not to. This is a table that is for believers only. And perhaps one of the ways we know we're believers is, is because we've identified ourselves with Jesus in baptism and in membership of his church. And, and for the Christian, this table becomes a place where we're not just reciting, but we're knowing and we're believing that I have to come back to the blood and body of Jesus all the time. I have to come back to him. He is the only way I am saved, and he must, I don't just do this once, and do it with all the people of God, because he must keep on saving me. And this is not only an escape from hell, that's not Christianity. This is what he tells us on the last meal before the cross, that he's gonna drink this anew with us in the kingdom of God, and that we, more than anything, we wanna drink it anew with them, because he is what we want more than anything else. And I think it is that we must be so reminded about where we are when we do this. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace, Lord. Uh, I think it's been all our lives studying your word and, and just to realize um, how much we fall short. And yet, there, realize just how much it is that you love us. I mean, you love us so much. And I pray that you would uh, help us know the heights and the depths of that love. Uh, by your grace and in the power of your spirit. I pray, God, for our community that that you would bring us so close to you that we would have a great heart for the lost and that we would run and and, and go meet people where they're at so that we might bring them to yourself. I pray that you would use our church in a mighty way here in Hawaii, Kai, and the island, and also the rest of the world. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.